As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for listening to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, I want to let you know about a very exciting competition. To celebrate 10 years since the release of Professor Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis A Life, we are giving away 15 copies, one for each chapter of the book, courtesy of the publisher Hodder Faith. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. This link will be included in the show notes, but here it is one more time. premierunbelievable.com slash book. But now for today's show. This is the 10th episode in our series on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. And our focus here is on post-war tensions and the problems Lewis encountered. Well, Alistair, by 1945, C.S. Lewis was pretty famous. So how did he cope with this fame? Well, I think the evidence suggests he he didn't really cope with it very well. I think that personally, he wasn't really psychologically prepared for being a celebrity. I think also um, he was becoming a celebrity for the wrong reasons for his Oxford friends who wanted him to become a megastar because of his excellent academic works. But actually he was becoming popular because because of his um, works aimed at a wider readership. So in effect, he was a populist rather than academic and his colleagues at Oxford did not like that. And why do you think his apologetics, uh, his apologetic works were so popular? Well, I think there are several reasons. One is they were very, very clearly and very well written. The other thing, of course, is that Lewis clearly was able to step inside the mind of his audience and say, look, uh, here are the questions you're asking. Here are the answers I'm giving. He gave them in a very elegant, very accessible way. So I think Lewis was in many ways um, a breath of fresh air, moving away from a rather stuffy, rather logical, rather technocratic form of apologetics to one that was warm, engaging and above all, you know, fun to listen to. Lewis received three rejections for professorship in fairly quick succession, didn't he? Was this because his popular literature made it more difficult to be taken seriously as an academic, do you think? There's no doubt that Lewis was, in effect, being rejected by some of his colleagues as a serious academic. Um, And partly, I think it was because he had a reputation as a Christian apologist. But I think we have to be careful here. That's only part of the picture. In many ways, the deeper problem is that Lewis didn't conform to the accepted standards of academic scholarship. And in many ways, his academic colleagues were saying, look, you, you aren't really the right person for these jobs. You haven't actually written the books we need to credentialize you to have these very, very senior positions. 
Do you think any of it was to do with his Christianity or was it purely the kind of popular versus academic that was the issue? It wasn't necessarily his religious beliefs that were a problem. I think that for some of his colleagues, his Christian beliefs were a problem, or at least the way that he chose to talk about them in public. I mean, in Oxford, the sort of convention at the time really was, well, you you have these beliefs in private, but Lewis was very, very public about them. And that, that actually grated with some of his colleagues. But I think we have to be clear, it, it really wasn't an anti-Christian thing. It was much more, Lewis has become a popular writer, and that does not help you in a purely academic context. So when Lewis finally did get round to writing a big piece of academic scholarship, he wrote a 700 page piece that, you know, was really quite needed at the time, wasn't it? Did that do anything, do you think, to restore Lewis's reputation in Oxford? Oh, it did. It rehabilitated him completely. Um, but that work, by the way, took 20 years to write. He was actually wow. contracted to write in 1935. Wow. And uh, Lewis, Lewis was so busy um, writing about things like uh, Narnia and uh, Screwtape that actually he, he just he, he lost focus. He just did, did not have the will to do it. It was so dull in his view. However, when his friends sort of way took him aside in private and said, look, you've got to write something serious academic or you are lost as a scholar. He in effect said, right, I've got to finish this. This, this is my number one priority. And actually the work is still um, re regularly referred to as a, as a masterpiece. So I think we can safely say that Lewis was rehabilitated and also he was elected a fellow of the British Academy as a result. And that means in effect, he was seen as really having very strong academic credentials. I mean, do you think he enjoyed writing that piece or did he much prefer to write the popular literature that he's sort of famous for today? Well, Lewis talks about the process of writing this very dull academic book. And, and you have the impression at times he was tearing out what little remained of his hair because he found it so dull. <laughs> um, I mean, basically, he read lots and lots of primary sources. And at several points, his room would have written never again, you know, mm -hmm. that he, having read that he'd never come back to it. So I think if I'm put like this, uh, it was very difficult for him to be creative in writing that scholarly book. Whereas Narnia, for example, really played to his great strength, which was expressing himself creatively and imaginatively and Lewis rather liked doing that so if you like I think he found his popular writings much more engaging and enjoy write I think many of his readers would say they are rather easy to read as well mm. so we're sort of in this post-1945 situation where Lewis is getting it, it, things are difficult academically, um, but as well as these professional setbacks, he encountered some personal trials in relation to Mrs. Moore becoming unwell and, and Warney's kind of growing alcoholism, didn't he? Well, that's quite right. I think we have to understand that Lewis was living in a house with two other people, uh, Mrs. Moore and his brother Warney. And initially this had been a, a blessing, I think it's fair to mm. say, that you know, they'd be able to have a very good time together. But the problem was Mrs. Moore became old and ill, developed what seems to have been a form of dementia and became a handful. And Lewis's brother, Warney, I'm afraid, developed alcoholism. I mean, when I say developed, I mean, the evidence actually suggests this may have been a problem earlier in his life, but it became evident in the late 1940s. And so Lewis now found himself, in effect, as a carer to two people who could not look after themselves, in addition to all this academic responsibility. So I think Lewis... Uh, at times would write to Arthur Greaves, who remember was his really only confident, he could only tell 
Arthur Greaves about his brother's alcoholism, for example, just saying, I, I can't really cope. <laughs> and I think that was a real problem, which in effect meant for Lewis, the late 1940s were very, very dark indeed. And on top of this, Lewis and Tolkien's relationship began to falter as well, didn't it? Why did that begin to break apart, do you think? Well, that relationship, I think, initially began to break apart, really, because Lewis became very good friends with uh, Charles Williams, who joined the um, Inklings and actually came to dominate the Inklings. And Tolkien, who had always seen himself as Lewis's best friend, felt, well, actually, um, I'm second best now. Um, Charles Williams has taken over. And I think that that, that was, I, th I think Tolkien felt hurt by this. Um, so that certainly was a problem. And the, the, the problem continued, actually. Later, for example, Tolkien found out by accident that um, Lewis had married Joy Davidman in the 1950s. And was actually really quite hurt that Lewis hadn't told him personally. So that relationship was fragile. But I have to say, Tolkien never gave up. He very much saw himself as a, a friend and mentor to Lewis and kept standing by him, even if Lewis's affection seemed to have moved somewhere else. Well, one of the things that we're told is that C.S. Lewis was offered a CBE, but then declined it. Do we know why he was offered the CBE and I suppose more significantly why he declined it? As far as we know, he was offered his CBE for his public service, um, particularly through those BBC broadcasts during the Second World War. Lewis rejected it because he felt that this would entangle him politically with um, conservative politics. I mean, I mean, Lewis was quite a conservative person, socially and intellectually, actually, but he, he felt he didn't really want to be rewarded for those views, and therefore he felt it was best if he simply said no. Also, part of me feels Lewis was Irish and just felt, why would he want to, in mm. effect, uh, be part of a British honours system. It wasn't really very Irish, and Lewis simply said, no, thank you. It's really interesting, isn't it? He obviously still saw himself as Irish, but we've, we've spoken already that actually uh, Irish people didn't necessarily see him as Irish, and English people saw him as English, and I suppose the CBE is kind of proof of that. It could well be. I mean, I mean, Lewis basically saw himself as being rooted in Ireland and con continued to go back there for his annual holidays. But to outsiders, I mean, there was no real sign of this. I think what you have to say is that Lewis came to be viewed both in Ireland and England as an English writer. Now, Elizabeth Anscombe, a young female Catholic philosopher, called Lewis to task over his critique of naturalism in his book Miracles. Uh, what, I mean, what did she say to him and do you think she was right to do so? Well, this happened at the Socratic Club. The Socratic Club actually came into being as a student initiative. Um, they, they felt they were not being helped by the sermons preached in Oxford to defend their faith or even understand their faith and asked Lewis if he'd be good enough to kind of convene a Socratic society where they could talk about these things. And Lewis did. And it blossomed. And in 1948, they invited Elizabeth Anscombe to talk about naturalism. Now, I think in inviting her, Lewis thought she would be friendly towards his general position, but actually she was quite critical. And I think that there was a rather a rather bruising encounter. Now, the, the jury's out really as to whether it was bruising because Elizabeth Anscombe was a bit of an intellectual bully, or whether it was bruising <laughs> because actually Lewis hadn't really thought his position through <laughs> quite mm. as much as he should have, but certainly he was not an easy occasion. I talked to some people who were there in writing my biography, and they were very clear that actually, A, Anscombe was rather aggressive with her rhetoric, and B, actually, um, that, that Lewis really wasn't equipped to deal with her, because in many ways, some of her arguments were based on 
a knowledge, for example, of Wittgenstein. And of course, Lewis just did not have that. So I think it was quite important. And as I read Lewis's writings of the time, what I sense is that Lewis felt that he should no longer dabble in philosophy because there were professionals out there who would not take him seriously. And therefore, in effect, he would, um, in effect, concentrate on his more popular writings and, of course, perhaps focus more on fiction. So I think that there is some truth in the suggestion that um, Elizabeth Anscombe may have encouraged him to focus more on fiction, although it is a bit more complicated than that. And so do you think, I mean, you sort of touched on it there, but but why was that critique from Elizabeth Anscombe so significant for C.S. Lewis? I think that what Elizabeth Anscombe showed Lewis was not that his position was wrong, but that he had not thought it through fully. In other words, mm. he had to make some distinctions and bring in some additional lines of argument to sustain what he had thought was a quite straightforward line of argument. So in fact, I think what Anscombe was really saying is, look, this is a bit more complicated than you think. Now, Lewis, in effect, was trying to develop a popular style of writing and engagement, which was simple. And I think Anscombe was really saying in some ways it's a bit simplistic here. You need to be careful here. So Lewis went away and wrote the offending chapter of his book, Miracles. And I have to say to you that actually the rewritten version is rather better. So mm. Elizabeth Anscombe may have been a kind of midwife to a more philosophically literate Lewis. So we, we have to thank her in some ways for, for bringing that about. And do you think this encounter with Elizabeth Anscombe put C.S. Lewis off apologetics? I think it brought home to him that um, that some of the new arguments that were emerging in philosophical culture after the Second World War were things he wasn't really familiar with. And therefore, there was a danger he'd be seen as out of touch. And therefore, perhaps he had to refocus. But you will notice that Lewis really keeps on engaging with the classic philosophical tradition of Plato, with Aristotle, which he clearly understands. So I think what Lewis really decided to do was simply refocus a bit and not engage with modern philosophical debates, but rather engage with more classic ones. So if that wasn't necessarily the kind of catalyst um, for Lewis's move away from apologetics, what do you think was? Because he seems to have moved away from it sort of as he got older, doesn't he? He did. I think that there are a number of things happening here. One of them, I think, is Lewis's feeling he was not actually all that good as an apologist. Uh, I think, and I think Lewis here really felt quite strongly that when he gave apologetic addresses, he came away feeling a bit exhausted, but also a bit empty, mm. because he felt he hadn't really done justice to the issues. And he felt, look, is this right for me? Secondly, I think Lewis was beginning to feel that um, apologetics is about engaging outsiders. Uh, shouldn't he really be nourishing insiders rather than challenging outsiders? And we see, I think, in the 1950s, a move by which Lewis is still doing apologetics, but he's in effect reassuring Christian believers that their faith makes sense and helping them to go deeper. So that, I think, is another very important point to bear in mind. But the other thing is, I think that Lewis really felt that he had his own distinct way of doing apologetics and that this wouldn't be recognised as apologetics by other people. And, for example, Carl Henry, an American writer, um, asked Lewis to write some works on apologetics for him for an American magazine. And Lewis said, well, look, actually, I'm, I'm not really an apologist in that sense. You want logical arguments. I'm kind of way more into um, narratives and imagination. So I think Lewis really felt that... Um, the discipline of apologetics was changing and he wasn't really fitting into the way in which it was going. Mm. 
There's a really significant moment in his talk, Christian Apologetics, isn't there, where he says, um, let me just get it up. Nothing is more dangerous to one's own faith than the work of an apologist. No doctrine of that faith seems to me so spectral, so unreal as one that I have just successfully defended in a public debate. I mean, that's quite a significant quote, isn't it? It's a very significant quote. And, and I mean, Lewis was very, very intellectually honest. I think we have to make that point. And, you know, there was no sense, you know, these guys are idiots. I'm really clever. It was much more. These are complex questions. And um, I am, in effect, putting myself, um, I, I make myself very vulnerable in talking about these things. And sometimes questions I'm being asked really are quite challenging. I mean, Lewis would very often follow through in later writings with questions he'd been asked in earlier debates. But I think what Lewis was really saying is that apologetics is not simply a human technique. It's actually something where you have to bring God into it. And so, you know, there's that very famous apologist prayer where in fact Lewis is saying, really, I need help here because mm. argumentation isn't good enough. We need some form of divine conviction or conversion to really bring about a change of heart and change of mind. Do you think there's a sense that actually it was very difficult for Lewis, um, you know, a, as a Christian apologist, because he seems to have had little effect on those closest to him, for, for instance, his father, Albert Lewis, and Mrs. Moore, who, from what we know, sort of never really became Christians, or certainly Mrs. Moore. Was, was that difficult for Lewis, do you think? I think it was. I, I think Lewis, at one or two points, self-discloses and says, look, um, I've had little impact on those closest to him. You mentioned his father, you mentioned Mrs. Moore, and actually Arthur Greaves, his closest friend in many ways, really began to move towards, well, I suppose Unitarianism in his later life. And Lewis again felt, I haven't been able to help there. And so I think what Lewis was very conscious of was that actually he was vulnerable as an apologist. He was not as good as he might be thought to be. And therefore, I think Lewis was very, very wary about being lionized because inside himself, he knew he wasn't really all that good. Now, of course, listeners will say, well, actually, he was very good. And I, I would agree with you, but Lewis did not feel that. We have to realize Lewis felt vulnerable, felt inadequate. And in one sense, I think almost had what we might now call an imposter syndrome. In other words, I'm being asked to do something that's making me feel uncomfortable because I'm not quite as sure about these things as might come across in my writings. So Lewis, I think, was very, very healthy in his own faith. I think the difficulty was he was being called upon to be a public representative of a faith, which in effect made he had, meant he had to use argumentative strategies he didn't necessarily feel entirely comfortable with. I suppose in some senses that's actually quite encouraging for us if we feel, you know, completely inadequate, ill-equipped, whatever it is to do evangelism with our friends and colleagues then. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think what you need to do is realise that Lewis did his best, aware that he was weak, aware that he wasn't doing it as well as he had hoped to. But as we look back on Lewis, they actually he did do it rather well. And I think that that, that actually is an encouragement. Uh, Lewis, I think, was surprised at how effective he was an apologist. Um, and it may be partly he was developing new apologetic techniques, which were very, very well received. But I think one of the things I, I would say simply is that um, Lewis is really saying to us, you just get out there and do what you can. And if, if, if there's a kind of resonance between what you're doing and what you're looking for, then that is going to take off. Don't try and judge yourself. Just do it and see what happens. 
As we come to the end of this episode, Alistair, do you think there are sort of five top tips, three top tips, even one top tip that C.S. Lewis would give to someone who's wanting to be a bit more sort of out there as an apologist or or even, um, you know, just as an evangelist among their friends and their colleagues? Well, I think there are several themes that emerge from Lewis's writings of the late 1940s and actually are picked up again in some of his um, letters of the 1950s. One of them is this constant emphasis on being able to speak the language that that will be recognized by the people you're talking to. In other words, use a language that connects up naturally, because one of the things Lewis is aware of is that very often the technical language of the Christian faith is alien to most audiences. So you've got to be able to explain what you're doing. The other thing I think Lewis does very, very well is step inside the shoes of the people he's talking to. He used to be an atheist. He knows what the questions are. He's engaging real life questions, and I think engaging them very well. So I think step inside their shoes. And the final point, which I think again is very important, is to bear in mind that Lewis had a support group in the Inklings. He wasn't doing this on his own. He is doing this with people who in effect thought that on the whole he was doing a good thing, but helped them to try and do it better. We all need those groups of critical friends which in effect support us, but at the same time, encourage us to become better. And that's something we really need, an accountability group. That's a good piece of advice, I think, for us. Alistair, thank you so much. We're going to move on in the next few episodes to talk about Narnia, but thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson, and Professor Alistair McGrath. And don't forget, we're giving you the opportunity to get a free copy of Alistair's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. That's premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book. Thank you for listening and see you next time where we'll be hearing more from Alistair on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis.